Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is Rebecca Coles. Where we were staying had kindly written our excuse uh, in, in Chinese on a bit of paper. <laughs> so we presented that at the border. They looked at us quite sternly and just said, you will not be punished this time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we crossed the border and, and got into Central Asia. It was, um... With mountaineering experience on all seven continents, I can't wait to get into the width and depth of knowledge that Rebecca has. We're going to talk about being the first all-women's team to climb the 4,000 meter peaks in the Alps. We're going to talk about climbing in remote places, being cold. We're going to talk about Scotland, a bit of travel as well, heading into Tibet and over to Kazakhstan. We're going to be talking about all things mountaineering, travel and adventure and I really hope that you love it. But just quickly before we get into it, it is the one year anniversary, happy birthday Between the Mountains podcast. I can't believe it's gone on for a year, I can't believe that we've grown so much. I really appreciate every single one of you for listening for an entire year or if you're new listeners as well, I absolutely appreciate you guys too. So thank you to everyone who gives it a lesson. I never ask for this, but if you could and if you feel you can, you've got two minutes spare, two seconds spare really. If you could give a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, if you can leave a review, that would be really, really helpful. The reason being... When you leave reviews, when you leave five stars, the podcast gets noticed, it gets picked up and it spreads the word uh, so much so, um, just as much as when you tell a friend to listen to. But if you can do that, then I'd really, really appreciate that. Otherwise, let's get straight into the interview. Thank you so much for one year. Hello, Becky. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Great, thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, not a problem at all. We had to, we've obviously had to we had to rearrange today. I think for for one of the best reasons possible, which is a a good day out in the mountains. So, so yeah, very very happy to hear that. <laughs> um, I think when you text me saying um, you were worried whether whether your child was going to be asleep, and I text back going, I'm worried whether I'm going to be awake. <laughs> for the, yeah, <laughs> for the podcast, we decided to rearrange, didn't we? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. So um, you said you've been climbing since around your school era, but where did the adventure itself start for you? Was it that first expedition to South Africa or was it earlier? Um, well, I think it was earlier. That was the first time I kind of properly went went abroad beyond a school trip to France sort of thing, going to South Africa, which was quite a, you know, a big, big difference. But beforehand, I was uh, in the UK um, exploring a lot and um, getting out into the into the countryside and then a bit further field into the mountains and stuff in the UK. So I think I always had a bit of that that streak of wanting to to go to new places and, and see new things. 
Amazing. So it's been born and bred right here in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, my family holidays were always UK based and um, we got to go to some amazing parts of the UK. So and I still really enjoy going to going to different places and all the, the hills and mountains in the UK. And Are there any places you haven't been in the UK? Places I haven't been. Um, I'm not very familiar with the flatlands of the UK, I guess. <laughs> East Anglia and places like that are, are not places I'm so familiar with. Um, so I wanted to talk about your ongoing project to become the first all-women's team to climb the Alpine 4,000 metre peaks. My main question was, why did that come about? Well, I had spent quite a bit of time previously in the greater ranges and I wanted to do something a bit a bit closer to home and I felt my knowledge of the Alps was lacking a bit and I wanted to explore the Alps a lot more and so I was kind of intrigued with the 4,000 metre peaks having climbed a few and thought oh you know maybe it'll be quite cool to aim to climb them all and um, started to think about that started to you know put some time aside to climb that and then in that research I discovered that actually no all women's team have climbed them all. And to be honest, that quite surprised me, all the talented uh, female alpinists there are. So I thought, wow, well, you know, there's an opportunity to do something a bit different. And that then sort of inspired me to set more time aside and, and plan more seriously. And, and rather than doing it in a series of kind of holiday alpine trips, uh, to to put the whole of 2019 kind of summer uh, and a bit of spring aside aside to do that and and remind me so I'm not completely clued up on this how many 4,000 meter peaks are there and how are you getting on how far into are you okay so this is a simple question with um, a complicated answer because defining 4,000 meter peaks is actually quite quite tricky which I discovered as I was researching more and there is a list of 52 main 4,000 meter peaks but it depends on the separation of the peaks so how much they go kind of their isolation basically how they go down before they go up again and so the main peaks is 52 list but more recently in the 90s uh, the UIAA came out with a list of 82 4,000 meter peaks and that um, included peaks that were kind of significant mountaineering achievements or climbing achievements. So, so they didn't necessarily have this big separation between the two peaks, but they were um, significant peaks in themselves. So we, after much debate, decided to go with the more recent list of 82 4,000 meter peaks, which put a few more on. <laughs> and uh, where we're at, so in uh, 2019, we climbed 56 of them. So uh, we've still got a few to go. And obviously we intended, intended to go back last year, but a few spanners in the work with uh, with COVID, I mean, like like so much. So, so yeah, it's just on hold at the moment. We kind of teased it a little bit just now, but um, you know, given the times we are in, I thought I'd bring the focus back to home. So when you think of mountains in the UK, what highlights come to mind? Um, I think for me, it is a combination of the technical climbing 
together with uh, the location. One of the really wonderful things in the UK is that we can be in the mountains, climbing in the mountains and be looking out to sea at the same time. So uh, that is actually really, really special. And um, I'm here in, in Snowdonia. But also, I spend quite a bit of time on the west coast of Scotland. And for me, there's nothing more magical than snowy peaks and then kind of that bit of green strip and then the sea and yeah, to be climbing like last week, climbing ice and being able to, to look out to sea, that, that's quite special. And then it's, it's the diversity really of the climbing as well. So for rock climbing, we've got the sea cliffs and then we've got the high mountains and then we've got lots of smaller little crags, we've got quarries and yeah, and you can, climb on all these different rock types and all these different places and situations from some really really wild remote places to some places that actually are almost quite quite urban and all super accessible you know climbing after work really easily you know it's beautiful I mean I don't know um if you know of Tom Livingston I uh, I we had a chat a few weeks back and the photos he sent through were beautiful of Gogarth uh, where he's just climbing up. He's, he's got this great pitch of him reaching out for a hold and it's just like crashing waves underneath him. It, it looks stunning. Sends my vertigo off, but looks stunning. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a really accessible place that's somewhere um, that you can climb after work. We often climb after work there. But it is also got this feeling of real wildness. So you know it's accessible. You know you can reach get into that situation really um, quite easily. But then when you're there, it feels remote and wild and um, really out there. Yeah, it's, it's quite unique that, I think. Um, so your blog is rich with gems of advice from keeping warm to staying light and fast. What are three non-negotiable tips that you value most in the mountains? I think they will be good company uh, with a climbing partner um, and uh, a spectacular place. And then also to be warm and comfortable. So I don't, <laughs> I go to all these very cold places, sometimes in the middle of the but I actually hate, I hate being cold. So um, I put lots of time and effort to make sure that I don't get cold. <laughs> I was going to say, one of the things I was reading up on your, on your blog was actually, in fact, the um, keeping warm in the cold, because I, I get cold hands and feet. And so the tips you were giving on there were, that were actually like specifically what I've been trying to look for. <laughs> it's just thinking, because um, I'm... I, you know, at the time of this episode being announced, um, being released, I've announced that I've uh, got a project to go and like train specifically for and climb Denali. Ah, that's cool, Banton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and one of one of my one of my concerns is I get, I get cold hands and feet, so I'm just thinking if it goes to minus forty, what the hell am I going to do? I can't just like do star jumps with my fingers. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, lots of trial and error for me, but um, and lots of kind of learning. Not not just through myself as well and my own experiences but taking people into the mountains and helping them being comfortable in the mountains means that um yeah I've picked up picked up quite a few tips and there's quite a few that I think for for cold hands and feet people just think oh I'll just buy thicker socks and, and thicker gloves but actually there's a lot 
a lot more to it than that, which I'm sure you picked up from the from the blog post. <laughs> yeah, four pairs of gloves when you go into the Scottish Highlands. Uh, a, a thin a thin sock to wear underneath the, the make the main sock. Yeah, sound tips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also warm legs and making sure you're eating enough to keep your 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 core body warm, so it's pumping out really warm heat and keeping your wrists and um wrists and lower legs covered as well and um yeah those those things as well that we we're just so focused on on how freezing our hands are and how unpleasant it is that we sometimes forget that we actually haven't eaten enough and therefore we're not going to have enough energy if we don't give our bodies fuel (laughs) It might sound like a stupid question, uh, and, and I've got a question later, so by all means, if it is that answer, uh, then don't go into it. But what would you say the coldest places that you've been to? And if it is Antarctica, um, what, what, are the, what would the other coldest place be? Well, cold is interesting because there is the cold that the thermometer says uh, or the wind chill factor says, and then there's cold that you actually feel inside and to me like the wet cold that you get in Scotland it, yeah and it can only it's, it's only sometimes um minus single figures or whatever but because it's damp with that cold it, it just gets to the bones and um and yeah I definitely felt the coldest I've ever felt in Scotland and you you nearly always got wind and wind chill in Scotland as well so um it can feel really really cold and it's a real battle that wet cold as well because it's really hard to manage um clothing and layers when when you're getting wet from maybe walking in in sleet or something and then and then um going higher and it's 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 frozen up but um you've already kind of got wet that's why we need so so many pairs of gloves to go climbing in Scotland because you've got to change those wet gloves Um, but yeah you know technically I've uh, definitely been on mountains in kind of minus 30 temperatures Um, when we summited at Concagua it's in the minus 30s with wind chill when I was out in climbing a first ascent in in western Nepal we don't know the actual temperature one night um but it was really, really cold one night um, in a high camp. And when we got back down to base camp the next night, we were like, oh, it's warm tonight, isn't it? Yeah, really warm. And then we did check the temperature and we were like unzipping sleeping bags and um, yeah, trying to cool off a bit. And we checked the temperature inside the tent then and it was actually minus eight inside the tent. So I think that, yeah, the previous night when we thought it was cold, I think it was probably, yeah, probably minus 30 then. Um, still not as cold as Scotland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair one. Uh, um, what usually sparks your inspiration for selecting remote places to explore? I mean, I know Google Earth is quite a popular one for people. Yeah, and um, as I'm a geographer, I love looking at maps and satellite images. So um, that's like a favourite pastime. <laughs> so that definitely provides a lot of in- inspiration. But where to s- kind of begin looking? I'm always really motivated to go to places that I don't know much about. And in fact, when I start to learn more about a place or I meet people that are like, oh yeah, I've been there. It's really cool. I'm like, I'm actually turned off by it. I'm like, oh, well, some people have been there. So, you know, I'm not so interested anymore. 
yeah, going to places I don't know much about. I want to find out more. Um, and it's not just the mountains, it's kind of the culture uh, as well. And that aspect of, of going to places it really inspires me. And then I'll, then I'll start looking at places and, and then, yeah, Google Earth is, is great, especially where you're going to really remote places that don't have a lot of mapping or um, it's hard to get hold of mapping. And, uh, yeah, it can give you great insights. So looking at those places and then being really inspired by a particular mountain or a particular line on a mountain then um, really makes me want to go to the effort of, of planning all the logistics, setting the time aside, the funds. Um, it's a lot of effort to go to those places. So you've really got to want to <laughs> want to do it and be inspired to do it. So you've climbed quite a few first ascents, uh, including more recently a first ascent of Lasamu La, and I think I've said that correctly, in yeah. Western yeah. Nepal, 6,246 yeah. metres. What kind of planning goes into doing something like this? So you've looked at the maps, you, you've chatted to people, you've chosen your culture and mountain, you're, you're right at the point where you've selected your location. What goes into actually then planning a first ascent on something? I guess um, there's kind of different aspects. Um, first of all, if you're you know dead set on climbing a mountain that hasn't been climbed before, then the research into whether someone's been out there and climbed it before and um, uh, and that aspect of research, which he goes into sort of looking at expedition reports to see if anyone had been to the area. And again, it, it's not simple. It's, um, we didn't know the name of this mountain at the time. And actually, I've heard sev- it called several names since. So it might have different names. Obviously, it's not just the uh, English-speaking world that are going to go out and climb mountains, the, the Russians, the Poles, the Japanese, they're all really good mountaineers as well, so there might be reports in different languages. So it's actually really hard to find out whether um, something's been climbed before. So so there's a research with that, that aspect, and then there's the research into the logistics side of things, and that really depends on the country that you're going to. So somewhere like Nepal uh, has a long kind of mountaineering kind of infrastructure history. Uh, if you go to Nepal and say, I want to go mountaineering, everyone understands uh, what, <laughs> what you want to go and do and, um, and, why, and why you want to go and do it. But some countries like uh, East and Tajikistan say that I've been out to um, quite a lot. They're like, but why? Why are you going to do that? <laughs> and, and, and then um, it becomes a bit more complicated with, with trying to put the logistics in place because no one really understands what you want or why you're going. <laughs> so Nepal, yeah, even though that part of Nepal doesn't get visited by mountaineers that regularly, it's, uh, it was relatively easy to um, get out to that place and then get the logistics in place to um, get into a base camp. And we chose to go, as like I do many of my expeditions, they are quite small, quite lightweight, quite simple logistics. So in that case, we just needed a, a person with some mules to help us get our kit to the base of the mountain. And then um, he was to return in two weeks time. So having been to Nepal, six seven eight times before I know what 
food I can buy where and um, how to get hold of gas for the stoves and the rescue in, um, possibilities in place. So when, so that research was all just from past experience and past knowledge. So I wasn't starting from scratch. And when it comes to the actual mountain itself too, do you have like a tick list of things that you're looking for on a personal level? I mean, especially as a, as a geographer, you know, is there thinking like, I love this rock type. So any, any mountains I do now has to be this rock type, has to be this sort of slope, has to has to definitely have at least this much prominence. Is there is there like a tick list that you look for before committing? I, I think in being inspired by the line um, <laughs> and then thinking of what objective dangers are up there are on a mountain so we all have a level of risk that we're comfortable with and so um, you're trying to anticipate what it would be like to climb it and where the risks will be and whether you're comfortable with with those risks. Um, A really big thing for me is having that backup option so that you're not kind of you've only got one option going into an area uh, that makes you maybe keep going towards that option even if you feel like it's not quite right and that you actually need to change the plan but if you don't have any backup plan what are you going to change to and um and yeah it's not so important that it's a wasted trip for me I I, I'm not bothered about that but you know I don't want to be in a situation where we're having discussions about going for an objective that we know is not right, but we wouldn't know, um, we don't have an, another option basically. So yeah, it's a bit of a hur- heuristic trap to, to do that. So, so yeah, uh, lots of different options. It aligns with the level of risk that I'm happy with and, um, and that it's going to be enjoyable climbing for me. So part of that level of risk is that I want to be relatively in my comfort zone with the climbing in remote parts of the greater ranges compared to in the Alps. So I feel for me that I want to go and kind of push my grain and push my climbing and develop my climbing in, in places which are um, the rescue is, is more available and um, rapid. So, so yeah, that's part of my, my, judgment of, of the risks I want to take <laughs> uh, yeah and rock, rock type wise uh, you know less worried about uh rock type for for mountaineering in the as long as it's not gonna be chossy and fall down <laughs> so uh, yeah as long as it's not crumbling and falling down I'm uh, I'm, I'm good with it when you're on the climb itself when you are running into setbacks like you did on La Samala What's the thought process and the action to get around them when they happen? Yeah, well, I think it, it, it depends what sort of setback it is. But I guess in the planning, I'm always very conscious to allow um, contingency days for setbacks. It, it, I think I, I help people plan trips. And um, I know people's time is really squeezed. And for high altitude trips, it's really time consuming to go out and do high altitude trips. But and I appreciate time is really squeezed. But by adding um, two, three days onto your trip, you're massively increasing your chances of success, really, because you've got a longer weather window. But you've also got a chance to recover from a tummy bug, um, 
if you're going to do new routes, it's often logistical hiccups. So you've got um, contingency for those happening and it's still not kind of running your trip. So so that's in, in, in the planning side of things. And then once you're out there, you, I mean, you've got to go with the flow a bit. Um, I've been fortunate. I've, tra- I've traveled a, a, a lot of places, so I can be quite relaxed about those logistical hiccups and the thing, the communication errors and, and that side of things. Um, if they're just going to, you know, if they just result in delays, it's not, not a big worry. People get, I think we're so used to everything just going like clockwork in our normal lives um, or, or really just quite minor things happening, not, um, <laughs> not losing like three bags or, <laughs> or them being delayed um, days and days and days, for example, or, yeah, uh, not having maybe the dehydrated meals that you expected to have or something. I'm quite used to now adapting and going with the flow and finding solutions. And that that's a big element for me and not getting too stressed about that sort of thing, because I've got the experience now to know that there's a lot, a lot of ways you can find yourself kind of um, sorting problems out uh, with that aspect. And, and then, you know, there's a certain amount of just, if the weather's not good, well, the weather's not good if the mountain or the route you've picked turns out to be tossy or there's a serac or, or or something that um couldn't have been foreseen maybe beforehand and that that's just the way it is you go you go to plan b and and that's the mountains again in our everyday lives we're, we're so used to success with stuff um but the mountains aren't like that actually I mean, we, we read stories of people being successful and getting to summits all the time, but m- a lot of time there will have been many, many not getting to the top of mountains before <laughs> before they did succeed. So, so yeah, that's just part of the process, um, failing on, on mountains, turning back, not getting to the top. So uh, it's brilliant for us to see that you have done first ascents in places like Antarctica. Um, I wanted to, to ask you, and... I'm wondering if uh, potentially I'm wrong with the assumption, because I know you said you like to stay within comfort zones when you do uh, first ascents. But what is it like climbing where no one has been before on one of the most remote places on Earth? I mean, it's it's hard to almost quantify in your brain, really. Um, And you have your team around you. So you have familiar people around you. So, again, it, it is hard to sometimes imagine how remote places are and certainly um south georgia it was so just an island off off antarctica i mean you don't kind of see anyone else there but other places that you go to that you think are really really remote so eastern tajikistan um the wakan corridor in afghanistan actually there's you know there are local people about and uh, it it feels incredibly remote to you and there isn't any rescue or anything like that. So it, it's remote in the sense of far from help, but uh, you'll bump into a shepherd or, uh, or, or someone wandering about because it's there, it's there, um, the place they, they take to graze their animals or, or the like. So, so yeah, it's, it's a bit obscure. Um, the feeling of remoteness sometimes, um, and, and yeah, very hard to kind of really 
appreciate in your and quantify in your head. <laughs> but is it even something that you'd, you know, I, I've, I suppose I'd say unfortunate because I want to experience it. I've not been to, to somewhere that remote before. Is it something that you would want to feel given that you're so remote? Because you could, you could argue that potentially a, a weaker minded person, if they actually began to feel just how remote they are, they might start underperforming and what they need to do. And I've definitely seen that, actually. Um, I think I feel quite comfortable in remoteness. Um, I think that that's quite that's it's something I really seek out. So I actually really appreciate it when I'm there. And I can get that feeling, not necessarily um, at the end of the earth. I can also get that feeling on a Munro in Scotland where you actually you can't see even any signs of, of um, people or roads or um, settlements or anything. So, yeah, that feeling can be evoked in lots of different places. Uh, and I'm very comfortable with it. And I, I, yeah, really enjoy that feeling. But, yeah, I have seen people um, become really overwhelmed by it and and yeah and underperform definitely so people that are really really good climbers much better climbers than me but um get to a place and not want to um lead climbs and go on the sharp end uh, you know and that's higher risk than, than than going on the other end of the rope the seconding end and um have felt yeah very uncomfortable um with it so and and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just our different comfort levels of uh, risk and perception of risk as well. Uh, at the other end of the scale, I've been quite alarmed maybe when I've taken groups to places that I know are really remote, that's going to be really difficult if we even have minor or more minor injuries like broken ankles or something. And I've been really alarmed by their lack of understanding of that and their willingness to to do um, partake in risky behaviours that that would be totally okay at home, you know, um, playing around on boulders and um, that sort of thing. But there, the consequences are going to be really complicated for, for getting people out. Yeah, because even a broken ankle, which isn't life or death, that's that becomes a very big burden when you're just so far away from getting them away quickly. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even distance, really. I, I, I think I, I put it down to accessibility of helicopter rescue um, in a lot of places or or some sort of vehicle rescue, which often in the mountains is helicopter rescue. So where there isn't helicopter rescue in places um, or you're you're not where an off-road vehicle could get to you or something, then, then yeah, it's it becomes... Um, very complicated and very prolonged and uncomfortable for for anyone interested. Yeah. So in highlights, I'd love to hear about your overland trip from Nepal to the UK. How did that go for you? Yeah. So I, I do come up with um, some rather crazy ideas sometimes. So um, this was 2012. So um, I've always been interested in slow travel and reducing kind of my carbon footprint as much as possible yeah not and not flying uh, as much as possible or certainly reducing my flights 
So that was a really big motivation. I wanted to do a really big trip and I wanted to go out to Nepal again. And then the person I was traveling with, he uh, was a Russian speaker and he was really intrigued to go to Central Asia. So all the stands and I knew nothing about Central Asia. And then when I started to look into it, I realized that some of the countries in Central Asia are really quite mountainous. So I was uh, obviously inspired to go. And because I knew nothing about it, I wanted to go even more to discover what, what was there. So, yeah, going to Nepal, doing some mountaineering and then um, getting to Central Asia to do some more mountaineering was the inspiration. And then we thought, well, let's link that by doing it um, overland. Um, all, all public transport. We didn't have our own um, vehicle or anything. And yeah, started to put the logistics in place. A lot of visas <laughs> for Central Asia in particular. So um, really focused because I was already familiar with Nepal. So really focused on, on Central Asia and the planning there. And actually, I, because I was so focused on Central Asia, I, there was a really big oversight in the trip and that, that nearly scuppered the trip uh, right near the start. And that was getting from Nepal into Tibet, which... I had not appreciated how tricky that could be. So we had spent six weeks in Nepal and um, wanted to go into Tibet. And actually the Nepal-Tibet um, border was closed uh, because politically... The Chinese is what it be. Yeah, yeah, the Chinese had closed it. Because they've, they've just rocked up in Tibet, haven't they? And just gone, yeah, you're ours. Yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. Of, so because in the, in the early 1900s they had control of it, and now they've sort of gone back saying it's it, that didn't end or something. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as far as the Han Chinese concerned, um, yes, uh, Tibet is part of China, and um, and yeah, they want complete control over it, and that actually does mean quite a lot of suppression of the people there. Um, and they're not the only people in 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 China that that. Um, have these problems of see we're hearing a lot about the Uyghurs in, in western China now as well in Xinjiang province but so for us on our little trip which pales into significance to the, the problems that Tibet is having um, we yeah we, we couldn't, couldn't travel into Tibet and that would mean that actually we couldn't uh, get to Central Asia because at the time 2012 then um, going through Pakistan route wasn't into India, Pakistan wasn't going to be an option. So, um, but we were lucky in that it, it did open for um, some group tour travellers. Um, that would mean we had to pay to go on a, um, a group coach trip, which <laughs> was felt massively against what we kind of, how we like to travel and what we like to do. But we, so we ended up on this coach with about 30, 35 other, other people. But um, it turned out that everyone else on this coach wouldn't have chosen to travel in that way at all either. And we ended up having an absolute riot. It was really good fun. Um, and uh, we went to a lot of um, monasteries and we had um, the official Han Chinese line on um, the uh, politics out there and uh, the situation out there. Uh, uh, but we we did have a lot of fun, and uh, actually our tour guys um, 
and they were good fun as well. We, I think in Larsa, we ended up in a, a nightclub in Larsa on the last night. And, and actually, yeah, and I've actually kept in touch with quite a few, few of those people from that coach trip. So, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and then uh, outside of Tibet, we had to travel on this permit, Tibetan permit, and, and we then could travel in, in the rest of China on that Tibetan permit, but we hadn't got one really long enough to do the tour that we were obliged to do and then um, get into Western China. So then we went to Xinjiang province um, that, were, that was fascinating actually into the, the areas of the Uyghurs. Uh, and from there we were going to access Kyrgyzstan, uh, but, um, and we would have got across the border, but the border was is closed at weekends or it was at the time. So that meant that we now had outstayed our Tibetan permit. So we were in China illegally on a Tibetan permit, which is not, not ideal. <laughs> so um, yeah, we were a little bit worried about trying to cross the border on the Monday morning. Someone where we were staying had kindly written our excuse uh, in, in Chinese on a bit of paper. <laughs> So we presented that at the border. They looked at us quite sternly and just said, you will not be punished this time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we crossed the border and, and got into Central Asia. That was um, not super. So, so yeah, that was, that was quite exciting, but it does, does sort of show that you can sometimes focus on what you think are, are going to be the issues and the problems logistically and plan all around those. And, um, and that there was this oversight. But, we, we did travel through 20 countries on that trip. So it was, it was quite a logistical feat to, um, to look into the planning of all of them. So <laughs> no doubt a ball would get dropped at some point. And that, <laughs> that was it. But we, we got our way through. <laughs> I like the Chinese guards, <laughs> like, almost like stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be punished this time. <laughs> and there was about five of us crossing the border. Um, most people doing like um, visa runs, like Kazakhs and stuff doing visa runs across the border. And um, so there's only about five of us and there's this huge cavernous building that we're going through. And one guard and about three different stations. And then they'd check our passport at the first station and then he'd get us to wait. He'd walk to the next kind of station and then beckon us across and then stamp the passports at that station and then get us to wait and then go to the next station and then beckon us across. <laughs> it's kind of comedy. And then I do remember at the end, there was a like rate your satisfaction um, like machine with happy faces and stuff. And uh, we were obviously very satisfied that we had um, not got in trouble. And then going to across to Kyrgyzstan, um, there was a brief check of the passports, passports. And then there was another station, which was health check. That sounded quite worrying. And uh, at which point someone just asked us, how is your health? And we said, oh, yeah, we're absolutely fine. Thank you. It's like, welcome to Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a health check. <laughs> God, that wouldn't, I don't think that would be the case today. <laughs> no. no. No, no. Do you have yeah. COVID? No, I don't, sir. In you come. Uh, only, yeah. <laughs> only if you were coming into the UK last month. <laughs> so um, I saw that you lead field studies in Iceland too. Um, and with your PhD in glacial geomorphology, 
do you get to scratch that itch often or do you crave doing more field studies yeah so i've really gone down the kind of mountaineering instruction route um so i don't do as much with uh, the glaciology side of things as as i used to yeah i would like to do i would like to do more and they're kind of looking out for for opportunities with that it is interesting yeah it, it is something i really enjoy the the geography and 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 in iceland it was great because we did everything from human geography and renewable energy and that side of things to to the physical geography side of things. There's, there's so much in Iceland, the glaciology, the um, volcanoes and um, yeah, it's a fascinating place. So um, I would like to do more, I guess, with any of the work that I've done and kind of career. If, if I, I don't feel like it is a career because that sounds very formal <laughs> and the work that I've done is is more just been taking up opportunities and I've because I am freelance self-employed and um, have my own small business it has been I've been able to be quite agile when when opportunities have come up and some of the most incredible opportunities can be quite last minute so um, being able to have a block of time to 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 lead an expedition somewhere or, or something then um, has been a big advantage for, for the things that I've ended up working on. So I've worked less with, with my geography of late, but I'm keen to go back to it. For sure. And then the last question before we get to some wrap-up ones is you you just mentioned how it's not your a career is too formal. The line I always use is you sort of in your career so far and your outdoors career so far. Uh, what is one moment that you would love to relive? Moment I'd love to relive. I think all, you know, the, there's so many, but I think those those feelings um, on expedition where you're really content for some reason, and it might be because you've had success, but most of the time you're content because... Um, you're surrounded by people that you feel really understand you and um, you're in a really inspiring place and you're experiencing something new or unexpected and I think yeah I think those feelings on expedition when of, of that side of contentment is um, yeah I'd, I'd always kind of think about those and would like to relive those. So Three wrap-up questions then. Okay. <laughs> you have climbed in climates across the globe. Is there a favourite one that you have? I think I think I'd always go back to those snowy coastal mountains. So whether that's South Georgia or the west coast of Scotland, um, I find those really inspiring. Oh, but then I find that the like greater ranges, Himalayas, Central Asia. You couldn't get further from the sea. <laughs> I think the so either those coastal mountains or the mountains you get where um, they have really incredible alpine meadows. Uh, so and you get there obviously in the Alps, but Kyrgyzstan is really amazing for um, lush green alpine meadows um, and then snow peaks. So they're pretty pretty special. Yeah. So if you had perfect conditions right now, where would you go and climb? Uh, 
some amazing ice on Ben Nevis. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then last one is if I wanted to learn mountain skills or keep up with your adventures, where could I do that? Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm fairly active on social media. So whether that's um, whatever you prefer, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, and so it's all but essential travel. And yeah, I've got some blog posts on kind of tips and tricks for mountains and going to remote places uh, with that. And I do have a support scheme as well, because lots of people contacted me about wanting this sort of career or wanting to plan their own expeditions. So I set up a um, Patreon support scheme. You can have different levels levels of support, but most people like um, like the three month check-in one and we have a chat every three months and um, give you some advice, resources, um, that sort of things. Or, or we go out in the mountains and do some instruction and learn some skills. That's a really simple way of having some instruction from someone who is so qualified as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just I got so many emails that I thought, how can I actually kind of support people with the quality of of advice I want I actually want to give rather than whizzing them off a quick email and a link. Um, it didn't feel enough, so so yeah. <laughs> well listen, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. No problem at all. <laughs> Thanks for chatting, Chris. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to that interview. Let me know what you think about it on btmtravelpod at gmail.com or do what more and more of you are doing and just get in touch on the social media. On Instagram is the, probably the best way to send me a direct message on there. Let me know what you're thinking about the episodes. If you did enjoy it, then have a quick listen to our interview with Caroline George, interview with Emily Scott, and also our interview with Tom Livingston. All of them cover climbing mountains, and high altitude and uh, keeping warm and some more mindset stuff like unconditional acceptance with Caroline George so go and give them a listen you can click on the blog on the show notes and at the bottom of the page you can find links to those episodes but like I say I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you in next week's episode have a fantastic day